Well, good morning. It's good to meet together again in this way and to be able to open up God's Word together. This morning is an exciting one for me because as you are watching this on Facebook and on YouTube, we are finally able to open up uh, Lakeside Church uh, with 30% capacity and uh, practicing safe social distancing. And I will be able to be preaching this live once again uh, to our church family, uh, those that can gather at the church. And so we will continue to offer the video in this way for weeks to come until we can go live uh, from the facility and uh, you'll be able to join us uh, live in the church at some point in the future. But for right now, uh, I get to preach this uh, for video and then get to preach it again live on Sunday morning. And so that's exciting that we'll be doing that this Sunday. This morning, we're continuing in our series on Matthew and uh, the text that I've picked, it's Matthew chapter 12. Uh, verses 22 to 37. So it's a bit of a long text and it can be a little bit difficult to understand. Jesus says some difficult things in it and some complicated things. He talks about um, binding a strong man and plundering his house. He talks about an unforgivable sin. Uh, he talks about good treasure and evil treasure. Uh, he talks about Satan casting out Satan. There's all kinds of stuff going on in this text. And so I want to be able to take the whole text because as a as an entire section, uh, really Jesus is making one point. And if I had to title this message, I would probably title it something like No Middle Ground. Neither Jesus nor the world gives us a middle ground in which we can stand between the two and somehow be non-committal. Neither the world nor Jesus gives us that choice. And in the text today, uh, we're going to see that Jesus makes this teaching clear by addressing the opposition of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are going to oppose what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is going to correct their error, and in so doing, reveal the nature of reality that we all exist in, that there are two kingdoms, that there are two powers, that there are two allegiances, that there are two natures, that'll be revealed by two fruit, and that ultimately can only result in two outcomes. There is no third. Um, it's, there's no middle ground. There's no third way. It's going to be one of the two. And so, as we've seen in Matthew many times, he uses contrast uh, to teach us these things. And, and, and Matthew writes in a way to bring contrast to the four. And so as you read Matthew, as you read this gospel, you're looking for contrast. It's not the only way to read Matthew. He's doing other things than simply contrasting. Uh, but it's one of the key ways in which you can understand what Matthew is teaching and what Jesus is teaching through the gospel of Matthew. And we really need to understand this. We, we, we really need to have this clarity brought to our lives because this is what Jesus is doing as he's doing this teaching. He's, he's, he's exposing the, God's true kingdom and revealing it to us and, and exposing Satan's false kingdom for what it is. And that's a good part of what this text comes down to. The battle that Satan is waging to cloud and confuse the minds of humanity and keep us in darkness versus the penetrating light of the kingdom of God to expose those lies and to rescue us and bring us into freedom. And so as I read the text, I want you to keep in mind that the main, that, that Jesus is teaching by contrast, he's contrasting two kingdoms, two powers, two allegiances, two natures revealed by two fruit, and that can only result in two outcomes. And that 
he's doing this because he wants to make it clear that there is no middle ground and that we have to choose the kingdom that we will be allied to. And we have to choose what nature we are going to have and therefore what fruit we will bear and what outcome will be ours. So it's a long text, but I want to read it in a way that you can absorb it and then in light of that, uh, work through it in a way that we see these contrasts. And so you'll see right off the bat that the two kingdoms come into into conflict And this is a contrast of two kingdoms uh, by the very first action of Jesus in this text. Matthew 12, 22 to 37. It says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself, then how will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or... How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So as I said, this is a text in which there is an abundance of contrasts. And the first contrast that we see here is that contrast of two kingdoms. We see right away the situation in which Jesus, the Son of God, is confronted with a demon, a fallen angel, a servant of the devil. This is the ultimate contrast. This is the ultimate conflict of kingdoms, the Son of God against a servant of the devil. And immediately, Jesus heals the man. So there is no contest. We see that Jesus speaks a word and he overthrows the kingdom of darkness. And we've seen that many times in Matthew already. And what we see in the text here is that the people who are watching understand the kingdom significance of what they are witnessing. The people who are watching understand what they're seeing. They see the power that Jesus has over the demonic. And they say, maybe this really is the son of David. Maybe this really is the Messiah. Is the kingdom really here? They see the inbreaking of a new kingdom and they start to see the light of it. And so they're not unaware of the conflict or of the contrast of kingdoms that's taking place. But on the other hand, the Pharisees want no part of Jesus being an authentic servant of God. They want no part of God's kingdom breaking in. And so they propose instead that Jesus serves an alternative kingdom. The Pharisees say, no, 
he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the chief demon, which is just a horrific thing to say about Jesus on the surface, but more importantly, it speaks to the very nature of their hearts, and that's what Jesus sees and responds to. Jesus hears the word of the Pharisees, but he also sees deeper into their nature. Matthew inserts here, he says, knowing their thoughts, which is an interesting thing for Matthew to write because the Pharisees just spoke what they were thinking. Everybody knew their thoughts. And so the thoughts that Jesus knows must not just be the things that the Pharisees said. Everybody knows them. Matthew says Jesus knows something more than that. And I think what we'll see here is that Jesus sees the condition of their hearts. He sees the nature of the Pharisees, where the words are coming from. And that's important to keep tucked away and and keep in mind as we go further, because we're going to look at the contrast of natures that comes from the contrast of kingdoms. But Jesus isn't going to just let this careless accusation stand. After the Pharisees say that, he immediately begins to dismantle their logic. He says it two different ways. First of all, he says, this makes no sense. If this is a battle of kingdoms, You already know, he says in verse 25 to 26, that any kingdom divided against itself falls. So if Satan is casting out demons by the power of Satan, then he has a terrible strategy. Satan shouldn't be casting out his own demons or his kingdom is divided and will fall. So that first thing he says is that makes no sense what the Pharisees are saying. And then secondly, Jesus says, if you're going to say that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then you're kind of accusing yourself as well because you occasionally cast out demons. Some of you Pharisees are exorcists. And if you're casting out demons by the power of Satan, then you would also be judged by those demons that you're casting out. And so Jesus basically sums up the kingdom argument here and he says, figure it out logically and you'll come to the same conclusion that people did. Your accusation that you're making against me doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense in terms of Satan casting out his own demons. It doesn't make any sense except that you're accusing yourself also of the way that you cast out demons. But, he says, if you figure this out logically, you'll come to the same conclusion that people did. If I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, he says, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The people are right. The kingdom of God is here, and it's overthrowing the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of illness and sickness and sin and everything that comes with the kingdom of darkness. It's a more powerful kingdom, and we see that in the second of two contrasts which Jesus brings to light. It is a contrast of two powers. Verse 29, Jesus says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder the house. So Jesus makes no mistake here that he is talking about power. This is about what power each kingdom has or does not have. And in one sentence, he paints a very graphic picture of what is at stake and the power that is required and the power that has come. The people have seen the power of sin and darkness. They have seen the power of sickness and bondage. They have seen that they are powerless against it. They know and we know that Satan is a strong man and he is going to have his way in his own house, which he temporarily has in this world. He has dominion over it for a time and he continues to wrestle and struggle and exert influence over this world. He can blind and he can bind because he is strong. And we see it, we feel the strength of it in war and oppression and violence and abuse and in addiction and in illness and in hatred and in depression. This is all the strength of Satan and the kingdom of darkness in the world. But Jesus says here, someone stronger than Satan has arrived. 
How can I cast out demons except that I am stronger than Satan? How can I plunder Satan's house except that I'm able to bind him? I am stronger and I am able to bind him and I can take what I want from him, which is what Jesus is doing. By his death and resurrection, by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus, not just rescuing people in his day, not just rescuing these people, Jesus is rescuing people in every age. He's rescuing his people out of slavery. He's lifting his people out of the pit. He's saving his people from darkness. The very people who Satan would seek to devour and destroy, Jesus instead gives life and light and freedom to. So Jesus makes it very clear here that this is a conflict of kingdoms. This is a conflict, conflict and a contrast of kingdoms, but this is about power. Power needs to come into the world that can bind Satan and can set people free. So there are two kingdoms and there are two powers, but one power is far greater than the other. The strong man is bound and Jesus is plundering his house. But Jesus says, and this is where the key text would indicate that we would call this, ver this message no middle ground. Jesus says there are only two allegiances. If this is the reality of kingdoms and powers, then you have to choose. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no middle ground here. And this is what I kind of, as I read it over and thought about it, came to my mind as Jesus's come to Jesus moment. We use that phrase, the come to Jesus moment, as that time in your life where you make a decision. You're either going to follow Jesus or you're not. And at various times, in various ways, the gospel message says to us, you have to believe, put your faith in Jesus, follow Jesus, or more simply, just trust Jesus. And an important characteristic of saving faith that every Christian understands is that there is a, eventually a decisive act that we must choose where our allegiance lies. And then from that moment on, when we make that decision where our allegiance lies, we know we will be kept secure in the grace of God. Now it's true that the Holy Spirit works in our life over time, that we are all at various points in our life on a journey of faith, and that you can be at earlier stages in your journey of faith towards that moment of allegiance before it happens and still be growing in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus. And at the same time, you can even look back and say, I don't actually really remember exactly when I made that decision. I didn't pray a prayer that said certain words. I just know that now my life is fully devoted to Jesus. And there must have been a point sometime in the past at which I made the switch from not being fully committed to being fully committed, from not fully treasuring Christ to fully treasuring Christ, from loving other things in the world more than Christ to now I love Jesus the most. So it's not always that you pray a prayer or there's a decisive moment that you remember. Rather, there is a condition that you're in, in which you transition from one place to the other. I'll try and explain it a little more because different Christians have different experiences about this and it's kind of important to understand. I'll use C.S. Lewis as an example. C.S. Lewis, if you read his biography and uh, his, his works, he, he touches on this a lot in his writing. He captures at various points of his life journey that he was on this, this traveling path or this journey towards faith in Jesus. And he mentions one particular night that he's with good friends. He, he recounts it and he says it this way. 
He says, I have just passed from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ, in Christianity. I will try to explain this another time, but my long talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a good deal to do with it. And yes, that's J.R.R. Tolkien, a good friend of C.S. Lewis. And then later on, soon after that day, he writes this. I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning, and when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. So you see, C.S. Lewis was on this journey towards knowing Christ, knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, believing in Jesus. And then at some point, he transitioned. He got to a point where he got home one evening, or when he got to the zoo or whatever, in the afternoon, he realized, I do believe in Jesus. I do trust Jesus. I have put my hope in him. I I don't know when it happened. It was probably sometime on the car ride, but I remember this morning I wasn't fully committed, and now I am fully committed. And so it's not necessarily a moment or a prayer that you remember. It's just the reality that right now, if you ask yourself, is your hope fully in Jesus? you'll be able to answer that question. And if your hope is fully in Jesus, then there is a point in which your allegiance shifted from one kingdom to another. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says you have to choose an allegiance. You're either for me or against me. But once Lewis, once I, once you come to that allegiance, then you will never be the same. Lewis was never the same man from that moment onward. He was a new creation with a new nature. Which leads Jesus speaking about the fourth contrast in this text. And I know I'm switching over the unforgivable sin. Don't worry, we're going to come back to it. I want to continue Jesus and Matthew's argument of contrasts. So there are two kingdoms. There are two powers. There are only two allegiances. You have to pick one. And when you've picked that new allegiance in Christ, you have a new nature. And Jesus now contrasts the two natures as he continues his argument. He says in verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Okay, now this text is super important. First of all, the easy part is, Jesus says, get your logic right. He's saying either the tree is good and its fruit is good or the tree is bad and the fruit is bad. And this concept that Jesus is important is illustrating is just so important to understanding the work that the Spirit needs to do, as a, do with us and, and where our righteousness stands. Jesus here is talking about the difference between our nature and our actions. And he says your words or your works flow out of your nature. You see how plainly he says that? He's talking about a tree, which is the nature, and the fruit, which is the words of the works. He says, how can you speak good when you are evil? Okay, now this is important. He says you're not evil because you say or do evil things. He says you say or do evil things because you are evil. And conversely, you're not good because you say or do good things. You do good things because you have, in your very nature, been made good. The fruit doesn't create the tree. The tree produces the fruit. This is revolutionary in understanding how the gospel works, how the spirit works, how God saves us. It's the fundamental difference between Christianity and the work of the spirit and every other religion and the work of man. Every other religion says that if you speak and act in good ways, 
then God will consider you good. If you speak and act in evil ways, then God will consider you evil. But Jesus says, no, you are either for me or against me. You are either in the kingdom of light and have a good nature of which good works and good words will flow, or else you're in the kingdom of darkness from which evil words and evil works will flow. Your very nature has to change. Your actions and your words flow from your nature. Your words and your actions don't determine your nature. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or Paul says it in Romans 6.6, 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Jesus is speaking to the reality of the human condition here. Our goodness and our rightness before God and ultimately on our own salvation then depends on the power we are given from the kingdom we claim allegiance to. It's what we treasure in our hearts from which our good or evil nature flows. And Jesus says that it's revealed most often and most obviously by our words. Jesus wants us to throw out any idea that we can muster up in ourselves some justifying or qualifying goodness out of our fallen nature. Jesus says if you are going to bear good fruit, you need to become a new kind of tree. You need a new treasure at the center of your heart. So then depending on those two contrasting natures of being of one nature or another, there's two contrasting outcomes. He says finally in verse 37, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Now if you were to take that sentence out of the context of what Jesus had just said about the tree and its fruit and about what we treasure in our hearts and where our words come from, then it would seem in that sentence that Jesus is saying, I'm going to judge you based on your words. But what we've seen already is that Jesus has already said that our words are really only the revealing of our inner nature. So Jesus is saying your words flow out of your nature, either the old nature of flesh and evil or the new nature of righteousness and good. And so your words will expose the nature by which you will be judged. You are either justified or condemned. You are either innocent of sin because Jesus has died for it, or you are guilty of sin because you've rejected his offer. You are either set free or you are set to prison. There are only two outcomes. Jesus leaves no middle ground. And there's nothing about this teaching that isn't serious. So what then? What about this teaching? What does this teaching of Jesus mean to us? What are some final conclusions we can draw from these contrasts? First of all, we see that there is a war between two kingdoms taking place, but it is not a war of equals. Jesus and the devil are not, as some myths would proclaim, brothers who are equal in power, and the world waits in the balance to see who will win. Jesus is God and the king, and though the devil may be strong, Jesus has bound the devil and is even now plundering his house. Jesus is rescuing into his kingdom the very people the devil believed were trapped forever in his. Jesus' kingdom started as a mustard seed. It started as one baby in a manger, one man on a cross, and it has spread from that one to 12 to 40 to 120 to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and the gates of hell cannot withstand against it. What this means is the power of the Spirit of God and Christ's kingdom is sufficient to overcome your sin. We live in victory, not defeat. Secondly, it means our power to overcome our own sin and the devil's evil comes from God himself by his Spirit. It is not particularly logical to think that we are going to overcome our brokenness by the same power that has left us broken in the first place. 
If we were able to swim, we wouldn't be drowning. If we were able to climb, we would not be in the pit. You need a power outside of yourself and a power greater than yourself to overcome your sin. And Jesus has come to make that possible and give you that power. Thirdly, you have to choose what you will do with Jesus in your life. There is no neutrality in this war on sin. You have to choose an allegiance. There's no neutrality on the war on sin in your own heart, and there is no neutrality on the war on sin in the world. If you are not confessing the state of your sinful heart and bringing the power of God to it, then you are actively colluding with and nurturing your sin. And at the same time, if you are not alongside God's people in some manner, joining in the mission of gathering, then you are outside of the compassionate mission of God and you are helping to scatter. And fourthly, if you have the Spirit of God and work by the Spirit of God, then you have a new nature. You take off what is old and you put on what is new. You're being transformed from faith to faith, and the evidence of that new nature is fruit, most obviously in how you speak and how you conduct yourself with others. You speak words of life, not words of death. You bear good fruit, not bad fruit. Your nature is not inherent in who you are. Your nature comes from who you serve what kingdom is in you, what treasure you store up inside you. Jesus is offering you a new kingdom and a new treasure and a new nature, one of life and light and good. And fifthly, from that new nature, revealed by our works and how we act with people, will flow our eternal future. We will be justified, not because we are intrinsically good or naturally good, but because we have had the good seed planted within us. We have the good kingdom planted the good treasure of Jesus Christ and his gospel within us. If we do not have that good nature planted within us, then we will be condemned because we have chosen the evil nature like the Pharisees and rejected the spirit. John 3.19 puts it this way. He says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And this brings us back full circle now to the Pharisees and the notion of the unforgivable sin. The Pharisees saw the light of Jesus at work against the power of sin and darkness when he healed the sick man and cast out the demon. But they rejected the light. They loved their darkness. And here we can come back to this idea of the unforgivable sin, or we could phrase it as the unsavable person. What sin is it that it is impossible for God to forgive? What person is unsavable even by God? only a person who has hardened their heart against the work of the Spirit to draw them to Christ and who has claimed allegiance with the kingdom of darkness instead. Verse 31 of this text, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The unforgivable sin is not simply a careless phrase you might speak. It's not even a questioning or challenging of Jesus on your journey towards faith. If that were the case, none of us would be saved. The sin in question here is resisting the very saving call of the Holy Spirit. Our God is a God who delights in forgiving. By his very nature, he is forgiving. Forgiveness of our sins doesn't even have to exist except that God desires it to be. God is compassionate. He does not desire that any should be lost. 2 Peter 3.9 says, He forgave Adam and Eve, and he forgave Abraham and Lot and Moses and Jacob and Gideon and David, and on and on he forgave. Or in the New Testament, he forgave Peter who denied him. 
in Mark 14, 66 to 72. He forgave Paul, who was a terrorist against the church and a self-admitted blasphemer, 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 14. And thousands of Jews and Gentiles in the churches that Paul planted who seemed barely able to stay out of each other's beds or out of court with each other or to treat each other kindly at all. God forgave all of them and forgave us. And so let's set this teaching in the light of the reality that God is not looking for a reason to condemn, a reason not to forgive. God has offered his own son to make forgiveness of sin open to everyone. His desire to save is settled on the cross of Jesus. We can make no doubt about that. So this isn't about Jesus looking for ways not to save us. This is about people who are setting themselves against the work of the Holy Spirit to draw them to God. You can consider it this way. It isn't really the sin of the Pharisees or our sin that is a problem for Jesus. Some Pharisees eventually came to love Jesus. Some Pharisees were saved. Sin isn't the final problem because Jesus has a solution for our sin. He died on the cross to make atonement for our sin. Sin is a problem that Jesus has already solved. But Jesus won't force you to love him more than you love your sin. And that's the final problem. If you love your sin, if you love your pride, if you love yourself more than Jesus, then you will reject the work of the Holy Spirit to call you out of darkness. And Jesus will, sadly, give you what you want. Remember, it wasn't what the Pharisees said openly. It is what Matthew says Jesus knows they were thinking down even deeper. Jesus knew the source of the Pharisees' words. Jesus knew their hearts were set against him. So don't be like the Pharisees who hated Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus today. Learn what he has been teaching his people. The king and the kingdom has come. The strong man is bound. Jesus is plundering his house. The victory over sin is here. Take on the new nature of Jesus as a new creation and let your words be of life that justify you, not condemn you. Everyone, great and small, rich and poor, old and young, must eventually decide what allegiance they swear and what king they will serve. Jesus leaves no middle ground. You have to decide. Who do you love? Who will you serve? Let's pray. Father God, this is a, a long and tricky text, and I thank you that by your Holy Spirit you have opened it to us and made it clear that the contrast is there. One kingdom versus another. One power versus another. One nature versus another. One outcome versus another. We have to choose. Neither the world nor Jesus will give us middle ground. We're either for him or against him. We are either a part of the kingdom of the world or a part of the kingdom of God. And so, Father, I pray that you would settle in our minds and in our hearts who we will swear allegiance to, who we will serve, and what our eternity will be. Father, you have given us the power by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross and thereby bind the strong man so that his house can be plundered. You have given us power over sin and victory over darkness. Let us lay hold to it afresh today. In Christ's name, amen.